This being the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, on these Sundays, on these Sundays that happen once a year, we look to God's Word to inform us, to inform our thinking and inform our hearts to be inclined and more in tune to what does God say about human life? What does God say about the sanctity of human life? And if you've been here for several weeks or for several months, you know that we started a sermon series called God's Story Hours story back in October, the first Sunday in October, and since then we've been in the book of Genesis. And for this morning, to continue staying in the book of Genesis, we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 21. The book of Genesis is the book of origins, and the reason we've been in the book of Genesis for so long is because it is so foundational to understanding God and who he is and how he moves and how he works in his people. And so I want to stay in the book of Genesis. We're going to skip a few chapters. We'll go back to Genesis uh, 15 next week. Last week we were in Genesis chapter 12. Next week we'll be in Genesis chapter 15. But on this Sunday, as we seek to understand God's understanding and God's heart towards the sacredness and the sanctity of human life, I want to look at a story in Genesis chapter 21. It's the story story of Ishmael and his mother Hagar because I'm not so much interested in understanding first and foremost how do we define the sanctity of human life. I want us to understand and see and understand the heart of God. And it's in this story of Hagar and Ishmael that we are, that we see the heart and the mind of God towards human life. You see, here at Coral Ridge, according to the Word of God, we believe that all life is sacred from the moment of conception because we believe that all life is created in the image of God. And right there, when I said the words, from the moment of conception, I know that there are some in the room whose heart just sank. And I want to be very clear this morning that God did not bring you to church today to shame you. But he brought you here to offer you hope. You see, our stories and our past do not need to shame us. But it's the story of God that reshapes us into his image and into his glory. So will you look with me this morning at Genesis chapter 21 as we looked at the sanctity of all human life. It's in this story, Genesis chapter 21, that we will pick up in verse 9 and read through verse 19. This is the inspired word of God. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not, be the, shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I will make you a nation. 
of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water of the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she sat and went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and she wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Often throughout church history, the people of God have been called a preview community. And what that means is that until God fully consummates the kingdom, and fully brings heaven to earth in the end, that the people of God are to remain here in this world as a preview of what is coming. I often have heard people call the church God's big movie trailer, that like a movie that is about to come out in order to give people a glimpse of the what is to come, that we as the church live and love and serve in such a way that we give the ultimate coming attraction in the way that we exist as a people of God in this world but not of this world. And particularly this morning, I want us to think about for a moment, if we are to truly be the coming attraction, if we are truly to be the preview community, to give people a glimpse in this world and in our lives of what God is and how he moves, then how in particular concerning the sanctity of human life do we live and love and serve in such a way that we give people a glimpse, a glimpse of hope of who God is and how he moves and how he serves as the people of God on earth as it is in heaven. So the question I want to answer this morning briefly is how does God see and how does God respond to the most vulnerable and how in light of that do his people see and his people respond to the most vulnerable of our society? 
And that's where we come and look at Genesis chapter 1 this morning. Now we dove right in and we skipped a lot of story in between Genesis 12 last week and Genesis chapter 21 this week. And in the next few weeks, we'll, di- we'll dive deep into Genesis 15 and 16 and 17 and, verse tw- and chapter 20 as we unpack the story of Abraham. But let me do a very brief summary, Cliff Notes version of what has happened in between Genesis 12 and where we find Abraham with Hagar and Ishmael. If you were here last week, we were told that Abraham is called out and he is called to go in faith and God makes this promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and through you all the nations will be blessed. To you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Well, here's the problem, right? And we addressed the problem last week, that he looks to his wife and she's barren. But God says, do not fear, I will provide. Abraham doesn't know how he will provide. He doesn't know what it will look like. But Abraham operates out of faith and believes that God will provide an offspring even in the midst of barrenness. Well, here's the problem. We get to Genesis chapter 21. There's still no offspring. You see, in order to have many sons, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, right? Good luck getting that out of your head the rest of the day. You need to have a son. In order to have many sons, you need to have a son. And here in Genesis chapter 21, Abraham doesn't have a son. And so Sarah and Abraham, not operating out of a spirit of faith, but out of a spirit of impulse, come up with this not so good idea. It's actually Sarah that goes to Abraham and says, well, if you really have to have a son, why don't you have a son with my maidservant, Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant? And so, like I said, not operating out of a spirit of faith, but out of a spirit of impulse, Abraham and Hagar come together and give birth to the son, Ishmael. And that's where we find ourselves in the story. A woman with no rights, a woman with no significance, a maidservant from Egypt gives birth to an illegitimate son by the name of Ishmael. And the first takeaway I want you to see here in this passage is that the vulnerable Hagar and the vulnerable Ishmael, the vulnerable here in this passage are abandoned. The vulnerable are abandoned. We read in verse 8 and 9 that they're celebrating the feast day of Isaac. You see, after Abraham and Hagar give birth to Ishmael, Sarah eventually gets pregnant and gives birth to the promised son, Isaac. And it's on Isaac's birthday, the promised son. They have a birthday. But there in verse 9, we read that Ishmael is mocking Isaac. It says that he mocks. And a mom doesn't like to hear the mocking of her son. And Sarah responds in the preceding verses by saying this to Abraham, get him out, Ishmael, and get her out, 
Hagar. And Abraham doesn't know what to do. It says that this displeases Abraham, the thought of abandoning Hagar and his son Ishmael. But God says, do it. I will still provide through the promised one, Isaac. And so Abraham reluctantly turns his back on Hagar and turns his back on Ishmael and he sends them on their way with nothing but a skin full of water, about the equivalent of three gallons of water. And so the only hope that Hagar and Ishmael have, their future extends only as far as how much water will be left in that skin in the next few days. And they are abandoned. They are abandoned and sent on their way. And we are told in verse 14 that they are sent out in this passage that Abraham sends them on their way. And it's in that moment that Hagar and Ishmael lose everything. They are abandoned and they lose protection. They lose covering. They lose their resources. They lose their inheritance. And for Ishmael, he loses his father. And it's in that moment where they become the most vulnerable. Hagar becomes a widow and Ishmael becomes an orphan with no father with no hope. And then we read something so bleak and so dark as the vulnerable Hagar and Ishmael are abandoned and sent on their way with no hope for a future. This is what it says in verse 15. It says, when the water skin is gone, Hagar put the child under one of the bushes. The word there, put, in the Hebrew means to throw. So imagine a mom simply throwing the son, abandoning the son in the bush, putting him there and throwing him there. Not only are Hagar and Ishmael abandoned by Abraham, but Hagar, the mother, abandons her orphan son. And what does it say in verse 16? She sat down opposite about the distance of a bow shot, which means that she was not in earshot distance to her son. Why? She did not want to hear him do what? It says that he didn't, she didn't want to hear him die. Verse 16, let me not look on the death of the child. And she lifted up her voice and she wept. She not only throws her son and abandons her son, but she goes so far away from him, though so that she cannot hear the voice of the son dying. As they're sitting in the wilderness, this is utter darkness and brokenness. Hagar abandoned, Hagar abandoning her son and leaving him there to die and running so far away so that she doesn't even have to watch him or hear her son die. And it's at that moment in verse 16 where it seems like there is absolutely no hope. What a bleak scenario. What a bleak picture. But it's then, and you should know this because you know the redemptive pattern of God, 
When all hope seems lost, and in the midst of utter darkness and chaos, we read that God intervenes. And the story does not end by the vulnerable being abandoned, but the story continues with the vulnerable being rescued by God. The second takeaway from this passage is that this story ends by the vulnerable being rescued by God. It's in verse 17 that we read that God heard the voice of the boy and sent an angel to her and says, Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy exactly where he is. You see, when all hope seems lost, in the midst of the vulnerable being abandoned, we see a God who is on the move and rescues the vulnerable, rescues those that have been abandoned. But it begs the question, on what basis does God rescue Ishmael? If you were there on that day, on what basis would you make the appeal to God? God, come down and rescue Ishmael because he is impressive. God, will you come down and rescue Ishmael because he is wealthy and of noble birth? Will you come down, God, and rescue Ishmael because he's the son of the promise? Here is the reality. All of those statements are not true for Ishmael. He is not wealthy, he is not impressive, and he is not the son of the promise. And so it begs the question, why does God intervene? And it's the same reason and the only reason why we intervene. It is simply because he is a human being created in the image of God. The only reason God intervenes is the only reason why we intervene because human beings matter to God because they are created in his image. And the only reason why we intervene is because humanity, particularly those that are the most vulnerable of our society, why they should matter to us is not because they do anything for us, not because we gain anything, only because they are created in the image of God. And watch how this story, the beauty of this story unfolds. In verse 17, God says, fear not, for I heard the voice of the boy crying. Do you understand how significant and how beautiful that is? God could hear while the mother couldn't hear. Do you understand how profound that is for us? That in our moments of grief and suffering, when we tend to tune out the suffering and the cries of the vulnerable of this world, that we have a God that never tunes us out, that never tunes out the cries of the most vulnerable. Do you understand how profound that is? That God is saying, I know you stopped listening, but I never stop. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that has intervened here. Hagar, I know you can't even hear the voice of the boy crying, but I can and I will. And in verse 20, we didn't read this verse. It says that God was with the boy and he grew up. And it is in that moment that God announces that to the fatherless, I will be their father. 
It is in that moment in verse 20, I will be with him that the boy who has no father, the boy who has been abandoned, God himself will be the father. And the beauty of this story is that the vulnerables do not, the story of the vulnerables do not end up in abandonment, but they end up with a God who rescues and intervenes. And so the question this morning is, where are God's eyes? And what is he hearing in his ears? For this Sunday in particular, I wanna make it very clear that God sees those babies in those wombs and he hears their cries and he sees them and he loves them. And if we are to be the preview community of God, our eyes need to become sharper and our ears need to become more in tune with the most vulnerable, particularly those that have no voice and have no hope and have no ability to defend themselves. We need to be a people who hear and see and intervene as God sees and hears and intervenes. So in closing this morning, in a very practical way, what can we do this morning? What can we do as the people of God to be people who hear and see and intervene? The very, very practical thing that we can do, and we talk about it a lot here at Coral Ridge, is we can equip the next generation. We have to equip the next generation. And this is what I mean by this. When we equip the next generation with the mind of Christ, one of the areas we have to fundamentally, foundationally equip our next generation is understanding the image of God in all people. That has to be foundational in our teaching that value and beauty and significance and identity comes from the God that created you because my fear is we are raising a generation, unfortunately, even in the church that believes and buys the lie that their value and identity and beauty and significance comes from the world and for what the culture says about them and their identity is not grounded in the image of God. And therefore, we should not wonder why we are in the condition we are today because we have for centuries been raising young men and women that do not understand that their value and their significance is grounded in one thing alone, the image of God from the moment of conception. Dr. Larry Stevens, if you're a mom or a dad, a great book, write this down, Your Child's Faith, an expert in the, in the field of development of in early childhood, even from the moment of conception, shows all of his research that a child's faith, their worldview is actually being developed and starting to be developed even inside the womb as they are growing in the womb. Why? Because they are created in the image of God. A person does not become significant and have value outside of the womb, but it starts inside of the womb. We need to educate our, this next generation that when they see on social media a child with special needs being bullied, that they look at that and understand that the reason that we should be outraged is because they are created in the image of God, but that that same outrage should translate into the baby that can't defend itself, 
in the womb. We need to raise up a generation that understands that intrinsic value begins at conception. Second thing that we can do is be informed. Be informed. I've shared these statistics before. 60 million babies have been aborted in the last five decades. Do you understand what is at stake? Are you informed and understand what is at stake? Let me say this very clearly. We cannot be a people that do not connect what we believe and then do nothing about it when it comes to voting. Let me be very clear about that. This must translate in how we serve and how we exist in our community and how we vote. Know the bills, know what's at stake. 60 million babies. There is a group right now called Planned Parenthood that is getting ready to spend $5 million in 2020 in nine states, all to convince you that you have a right to choose. Will we not be the people of God that stand up and say, no, you do not have the right to choose. The only thing we have the right to choose is to promote and declare a culture of life in the midst of a culture of death. And now, you, I, I know what you're saying. There you go, pastor. This is what happens, and this is how we become one-issue voters. And I want to go and say, listen to me very carefully. The history of this world has been shaped by one-issue voters. And I cannot think of a more important issue for the people of God to get behind than the sanctity of all human life. Be informed and make a difference. Number three, get involved. We've heard from Ariana this morning. We are giving you in a minute, in minutes, an opportunity to walk out those doors and engage with Hope Women's Center. And that is just one of many ways that you can get involved. You can support them financially. You can volunteer. You can go to their banquets. You can talk about them with friends and family members and people in your significant circles of influence about the work that Hope Women's Center is doing. Get involved. Get involved. We cannot be a people that just shake our fist at abortion and do nothing about it. We must be not simply reactive. We have to be people that are proactive. And then lastly, and most importantly, we need to offer hope. We need to be the people that offer hope that Jesus Christ through his church is the hope of the world. The statistics, if they're true and if they're right, one out of four women have had an abortion. That means there is someone here this morning that is either wrestling with this decision or feeling the guilt and the shame of their past. And the question for you is the same question for all of us this morning. Where in the midst of tragedy and shame do we find hope? And it is only in one place and in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the message of the gospel is this, and this is why it is the greatest message this world has ever heard or seen, is that Jesus Christ came down, and he became vulnerable, and he was abandoned by his people, even abandoned by his father on the cross. 
And it was through the vulnerability of Jesus and the abandonment of Jesus on the cross that you and I can have hope this morning that God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ will never abandon you and me. For those that have had an abortion this morning, there is good news. You do not have to wear the scarlet letter anymore because Jesus has worn the scarlet letter for you. I love doing weddings. Think back in the November and December, I did about seven weddings here at Coral Ridge and in the community. And, my, and the best part of the wedding is at the very beginning, when the bride is getting ready to walk down the aisle. And what happens? Everybody stands and everybody turns and looks down the aisle and looks at the bride in all of her splendor. But I don't look at the bride. I like to look at the groom. And what is the groom typically doing? The groom either has a big smile on his face or maybe even tears streaming down out of his eyes and down his cheeks. And I love the look of the groom watching his bride come down the aisle in all of her beauty and in all of her splendor. Well, listen to me. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, that's how Jesus looks at you. He does not look at your shame. He does not look at your past. But for those who are in Jesus Christ this morning, he sees his beautiful bride in all of her splendor and with open arms says, come unto me. If you're here this morning and you are broken and weary and heavy laden, you do not have to be defined by your shame and you do not have to be defined by your past. You can be defined by Jesus Christ who says you are my beloved bride and allow him to embrace you with all of your new beauty because of what Jesus has done for you. Would you come to him this morning?